belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for July 30th, 2023 is called Rule Breakers. The teacher is Shannon Barrowcliffe and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning and welcome to Grace Church for those here uh, uh, in person. Oh, hello, online. And those who are listening to the podcast uh, sometime later. We are so glad you're here. My name is Shannon Barrowcliffe. Thank you for joining me today. So for children, rules are designed to help make sense of the world and are intended to keep them safe, abide by social norms, and generally help them become successful adults. If you're like me, you generally love rules. You treat them like a playbook where if you play your hand just right, you won't get in trouble, but your siblings will. I am the youngest of three, and while I am the presumed troublemaker, presumed rule breaker, I used rules to earn praise, love, and attention. I navigated my life attempting to avoid behavior that would earn me scoldings, groundings, or the dreaded baseboard to the bum. As an adult reflecting on these behaviors and motivations, I realized that I used rules to self-protect as opposed to protecting others. I used the unspoken rules of our society to insulate myself rather than see injustices um, happening around me. And while children shouldn't and aren't necessarily expected to see the oppression of others, um, of others around them or speak up on their behalf even, God does call his children. He calls you and me to do just that. Today we'll be diving into Exodus 22 in the middle of a bunch of rules, also known as the commandments or mitzvot in Hebrew, given to the Israelites by God. Of the 613 commandments found in the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, 110 are found throughout the book of Exodus. Thankfully, we won't be covering all these rules, but I do want us to pause and understand the overarching meaning of these commandments and how they tie back to covenant. And more importantly, I want us to reflect on why they should continue to have an impact on us today. Covenant is a word we have all heard and most probably have a general understanding of its meaning, which is simply an agreement or contract. Common present-day covenants would be marriages, regardless of religious affiliation, a non-compete you might sign when you leave a company, loans with a bank, and the dreaded HOA. Really, any time a promise is made between two parties. So what makes a covenant with God so important and different from the examples above? The Bible Project states this importance really well. They write, covenants are one of the most important themes in the Bible. They are the key to God's redemptive plan to restore humanity to its divine calling. While there are a lot of covenants throughout the Bible, there are five foundational covenants that God makes before establishing a new covenant with Jesus. Moses is one of those five, um, and this covenant is made on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, starting in verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. The contract is quite simple in theory. If the Israelites obey God's voice, then they shall be his treasured possession. 
And thus comes the Ten Commandments, followed by two chapters worth of what some might consider lesser commandments. Now, if you're like me, you probably either didn't read most of the laws, um, or, or focusing instead on just on the Ten Commandments, or you just read them as part of your read the Bible in a year goal, not truly studying the commandments. Either way, there's no judgment. It's really challenging to take a law, like whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, and find meaningful daily implications. <laughs> but if we if we believe if if we're to believe that in 2023 and today we're given God's word in the form of Torah to still impact us today, then we need to understand why God would use would be so detailed and why He would give so many commandments for the Israelites to follow. To help make my point, I want us to jump back to Genesis to a story that seemingly shows the cruelty of God but upon further study, actually shows just how different our God is. It's the story that once I understood the true meaning, the true underlying intention, I f it flipped the way I viewed God, especially in the Old Testament, when cruelty and unfairness seems to be commonplace. And that is the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Something we have to realize is that in Abraham's day, child sacrifice for God, lowercase g, was extremely common. So when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, a child that he and Sarah desperately wanted and would have been a teenager at this point, it's actually not surprising, right? Abraham is not surprised by this. And it's not surprising that Abraham would obey then. Again, this is part of the culture, the practice of the people. But what is different is that God doesn't allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, instead replacing the sacrificial element Isaac with a ram. So if we follow that same theme, that God continually shows he is different from other gods of the day, how he is different from the beliefs and culture of the day, then we find the underlying meaning of the actions of God. Applying the same understanding, the commandments were fundamentally created to show the Israelites and us how to love God and love others. And in a world of child sacrifices and other social injustices, this is radically different. We are called to be radically different. If you look through Exodus chapters 20, 21, and 22, your Bibles have created headings where laws were naturally aligned. Again, those were created by humans, not God. My Bible breaks them out to read the law concerning the altar, the law concerning slaves, the law concerning violence, laws of restitution, and social and religious laws. When you go back and read laws that concern how you should handle an ox or a donkey that falls into a pit, how you should navigate if your money is stolen while your neighbor is watching it, or how you to deal with two quarreling people where one strikes the other with a stone, try to read those laws with the lens of God, where God is setting his people apart, and thus himself. I have to admit, it is difficult to understand many of these laws but with that viewpoint, um, you can begin to see how God is different, how God is justice-oriented, and how we are called to treat people differently than was accustomed to for that day and age. Now let's get to the text for today, keeping that viewpoint, that lens, as we read. Starting in verse 21, reading from the message. Don't abuse or take advantage of strangers. You, remember, were once strangers in Egypt. Don't mistreat widows or orphans. If you do, and they cry out to me, you can be sure I'll take them most seriously. 
I'll show my anger and come raging among you with the sword. And your wives will end up widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to any of the down and out among you, don't come down hard on them and gouge them with interest. If you take your neighbor's coat as security, give it back before nightfall. It may be your neighbor's only covering. What else does the person have to sleep in? And if I hear the neighbor crying out from the cold, I'll step in. I'm compassionate. So we're going to break these verses down into three groups. The first, the stranger, also written as the resident alien, the foreigner, or the sojourner, depending on your translation. The orphan and the widow, and then finally, the poor. You must not wrong a resident foreigner, nor oppress him, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. If you reread Exodus, uh, you'll start to notice how often God has to remind his people of their history, where, or where they come from. In chapter 6 of Exodus, God reminds Moses of his people's story, recalling the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and pointing out that they were foreigners in the land of Canaan. In chapter 19, as mentioned earlier, God has to remind Moses who rescued the Israelites from Egypt. We have verse 21 clearly reminding them, once again, that they were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then almost verbatim, in chapter 23, verse 9, it states, You must not oppress the resident foreigner, since you know the life of a foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. If I have learned anything from my years of studying the Bible, it's that when a theme repeats itself, especially when the, within the same book like Exodus, I better pay close attention. And when the directive, do not oppress, is given nearly back to back, that is a command I must heed. Most, if not all of us here today, can easily acknowledge that we are foreigners to Northwest Arkansas. It is not our land, but the land of the Osage, Cato, Quapaw Nations. It is the land of the Cherokee, Muscogee, Chickasaw, and Seminole Nations that were forced to pass through the area um, as they traveled the Trail of Tears. I am a foreigner, you are a foreigner. And I am thankful that most, if not all of us here today can acknowledge that regardless of where we were born, regardless of how many generations have lived in America, and regardless of how our first ancestors stepped foot on this country, we are all foreigners. So grounding ourselves in this truth, I want each of us to take a moment to reflect on this question, which can be and should be at least a little bit uncomfortable. How do you treat the foreigner? Does your treatment differ based on if they've moved from another part of the state, another part of the country, or have come from another country altogether? Does your treatment, your opinion, differ based on their immigration status? Our gut reactions naturally are no. But I want you to sit in the uncomfortable tension of these questions and have an honest reflection. I had the fortunate opportunity to sit in this uncomfortable tension when I recently read a post from the Immigration Coalition, a nonprofit that provides clean water, food, and uh, essential items to immigrants, migrants, and asylum seekers along the southern border. Their post states, remember, a reminder, your biblical understanding is distorted if you're willing to love and take pictures with humans in Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Haiti, but aren't willing to love those same humans at the southern border. Because you think they're undocumented. <laughs> God calls us to not oppress the foreigner, 
reminding us that we are foreigners ourselves. This position isn't political, and it isn't about documented versus undocumented, legal versus illegal. It's about upholding God's commandment to not oppress. The last two groups in these verses for today are the same, but different. The same general command to not abuse a certain group of who are encouraged to call out their impression, yet a different response from God. But first I want to share a, an invaluable lesson I learned probably about three years ago that you'll see relates to this text. It's a really simple lesson that some, if not all of you, here today will roll your eyes at because you already know this. And that simple lesson is to question the text. For the first 10, 12 years of being a believer, I felt like I could ask general questions of others about the text, but couldn't look at the text itself and ask, why? If I did ask why, um, sorry, if I did ask why, it felt like I was disrespecting God. And if I'm honest, more about feeling dumb for not understanding the text. But once I learned the practice of reading my Bible and asking questions like, why would God need to include a commandment about not lying with an animal? It suddenly becomes a more accessible text, which it suddenly becomes a more accessible text, which led me to a more two-way relationship with God. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't know that just because I asked questions didn't mean I received answers, correct answers even, nor did it always lead to big revelations or the seemingly magical Holy Spirit connection or moment. But it did allow me to slow down. It allowed me to freely make comments like, that doesn't make sense, and that's really weird. And it allowed for small details to stand out, which would have otherwise been missed. A few years ago, my husband Mark and I were fortunate enough to start a youth group focused on middle and junior high schoolers. We were a small group of two other volunteers, so our production value was non-existent. But one thing we wanted to instill in these kids was the freedom, at least on those Sunday mornings, to ask questions of the text without any fear of consequences, including looking silly amongst their peers or seeming unintelligent. While our time with the students was short, just a few months before COVID shut everything down, let me tell you, our time was magical. We would start our, our time together by reading the text, which always aligned with what the big church was doing, regardless of the topic. And then we'd ask the question, what questions do you have? We spent nearly our entire time uh, just asking questions and giving each of them the space, the opportunity to wrestle with the potential answers. The questions were sometimes awkward. Uh, there was about a month where all the verses, something had to do with like sexual immorality. I'm not even kidding you, so that's fun with middle schoolers. But it was such a special time where we saw the students light up and interact with the text in a way that I was never able to in my 20s. So bear with me as we try this out with the next set of verses, right here, right now. Starting in verse 22. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. Reading these three verses, what questions do you have? This is literally going to be participatory, so I like to shake things up. So I'm going to read the verses again for anyone who wants to, to shout out your questions. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn 
and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. What questions do you have? So the question is, is that God speaking? I'm going to try and, uh, yes. So that is, he's giving Moses all these commandments. What's his definition of use? Okay, we're just going to collect questions. I realized I wasn't actually meaning to try and answer anything. But So <laughs> what's the, how do we define abuse? Yep. Why don't we see God like physically responding with the sword? Yep. What are the questions? I'm going to try and restate that. So what, what are we supposed to do when we see that? How are we supposed to intervene? How are we supposed to respond? And that being oppression, yep. That's a great question. So why are widows and orphans specifically called out? Why why are they so special to, to God's heart? Yeah. What was going on at the time that was causing so much abuse to these this group of people? Man, these are great questions. Oh my gosh, anyone else? I want to go. Oh my gosh, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> why are others penalized? When they weren't part of it, right? So why are the widows made widows? Why are the orphans made orphans? They didn't do the oppression. It's a great question. So on our teaching team call, which is small but mighty, two weeks ago with Laura and Betty, I got on and quite literally asked these same types of questions. I was like, what do I do, you all? <laughs> My top questions were along, were along the lines of, why would God promote or execute violent justice or retribution only to make more orphans and widows, thus um, the people group he is trying to protect, and thus perpetuating the cycle. And if I were to take this literally, why am I not seeing God kill them with the physical sword? Like, why am I not seeing this? I am seeing injustices today. Why don't I see this? So basically, why is God so violent and cruel? So like, those are the types of questions distilled. And you guys had way more questions than I had. I loved it. See? This is, this is why I love asking those questions of the test. So 10 years ago, I wouldn't be asking these questions. Those questions feel challenging and questioning the character of God, who is only allowed to be painted as loving and, and justified. That's scary, right? But if we don't question the text, if we don't wrestle with this apparent contradiction of our God, we might miss the point. So let's attempt to tackle the two questions I mentioned. Why would God promote violent justice only to make orphans and widows, the people group he is trying to protect, thus perpetuating the cycle. And why haven't I physically seen God come down with a sword and enact justice? Laura helped answer this question, uh, in part with a note she had in her study Bible. The note said, the punishment will follow the form of talionic justice, an eye for an eye, in which the punishment matches the crime. God will use invading armies. Sword is a, here we go, metanomy, metanomy, metanomy. Hmm not sure, of adjunct here. So God will use invading armies to destroy them, making their wives widows and their, their children orphans. So said in another way, God is using the language and practice familiar to those day and age. Again, an eye for an eye. That is a very common practice. The cultural practice that were commonplace and kill you with the sword is a figure of speech. So he's not going to come and do it. He's going to allow the injustices around to do it. So it's not a little practice. So God isn't cruel. He meets us where we are. He speaks in our language, 
our cultural traditions. He doesn't always try to flip the system on its head in a way to eliminate it completely. He more often than not works within our systems. It's why we have the patriarchal society we do. He, he didn't create or ordain it, but he lovingly works within our own ways to restore humanity to his divine calling. So another aspect the teaching team discussed about this cycle of orphans as widows is something I learned about 10 years ago, which is generational sin. I relate it back to Numbers 14, 18, which states, God, slow to get angry and huge in loyal love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, still never, uh, never just whitewashing sin, but extending the fallout of parent sin to children into the, the third, even the fourth generation. This verse has always felt like the ultimate unfairness, the pinnacle of cruelty. Why would God punish the children and the grandchildren for the sin of the father? This is generational sin. I believe this is a component of Exodus 22. God isn't dictating that the child be punished. Rather, he is allowing for the natural consequences of the sin to continue. The sin of the father, which is the oppression of widows and orphans, will have an impact on his wife and children due to his sin. Think about the implications you would have faced if you were, or maybe are, an orphan or widow. There are learned behaviors and beliefs that are passed down from one generation to the next, only stopping when someone breaks the, that cycle of behavior. I have a very clear generational sin pattern in my family that my siblings and I are working to break. I won't share the details of the behavior this morning due to the heaviness of the topic, but I am happy to share one on one. But once I was able to take my behaviors and the behaviors of my mom and place them in the generational sin context, I was not only able to start healing myself, but I was able to have this new compassion um, and understanding for my mom's actions and behaviors, along with the other family members that contributed to this generational sin. So it's really important that we kind of sit down and wrestle with that. Let's jump to the last portion of the text before we uh, look at some of the differences I mentioned earlier in God's response. Starting in verse 25. If you lend money to my people, to any of the down and out among you, don't come hard on them and gouge them with interest. If you take your neighbor's coat as security, give it back before nightfall. It may be your neighbor's only covering. What else does the person have to sleep in? And if I hear the neighbor crying out from the cold, I'll step in. I'm compassionate. If we were to do the same exercises earlier and ask questions, most may not even have a question here. There doesn't seem to be a, a problematic behavior, and God's response doesn't seem violent or unfair to others. So in this type of situation, I'm asked the question, and you kind of alluded to it, what is the context that's included that would make God include this commandment? What social context am I not aware of that would compel God to give such a rule? I don't have the answer. <laughs> right, I don't have a specific answer for this, and I'm not aware of what unique behaviors of the time would drive this rule, but again, that's okay. You don't have to have all the answers. I do know that there are, uh, sorry, that there are behaviors today that would necessitate this type of commandment, such as predatory lending practices by banks, uh, payday advance businesses, bail companies, and the like. So there must have been similar practices then as well, but probably by individuals rather than corporations. And once again, going back to the overarching theme of godly covenants 
and the commandments that are given, God is working to show his redemptive plan to restore humanity to its divine calling by loving others. This text should give us pause to think about how we're treating those we lend money to, our friends and family. And how are we treating our neighbor who is poor? Are we taking their cloak, their only form of protection or warmth, when they've been in, su in, need, in such need that they pawned it to us in the first place? As we wrap up this morning, I want us to lastly look and reread the ver these verses on these last two oppressed people's groups. So again, starting in verse 22. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to any of the down and out among you, don't come down hard on them and gouge them with interest. If you take your neighbor's coat as security, give it back before nightfall. It may be your neighbor's only covering. What else does the person have to sleep in? And if I hear the neighbor crying out from the cold, I'll step in. I'm compassionate. What is the common response by the oppressed in these verses? Crying out. If you recall back in the April, Laura walked us through Exodus 2, where we're introduced to the power of the cry. We're introduced to the power of the, um, the, power of the voice of the oppressed. And just like chapter 2, God isn't asking or demanding that those oppressed cry out specifically to him just to use their voice. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on Exodus 2, wrote about the power of that voice to be heard and make change. He writes, pain brought to voice and public speech so that it is heard out loud promptly rearranges all power realities that are thought to be settled. Once again, we have a theme that we must sit up and pay attention to. We must use our voices. We must make space for those oppressed to use their voice. God's response to these two people groups is quite different. For the orphan and widows, he demonstrates divine wrath, while for the poor, he shows divine compassion. Two radically different responses. During our teaching team meeting, Betty pointed out that these responses appear what we, we can be described as like mother, a mothering language and protection. It's a response widely different from the other gods of the day. So I'm not a parent, but I believe I have actually felt this idea of protective mothering and can look and feel like, uh, and I'm sorry, let me restate that. <laughs> now I'm not a parent, but I believe I have felt what this idea of protective mothering can look and feel like. So I think we're all capable um, of experiencing this regardless of our parental status. So about 10 years ago, I worked at the university where I had a graduate assistant who was volunteering with the athletic department for football games. Many of you are actually probably aware of this event I'm about to describe as it would change your game day experience and the use of t-shirt cannons. So long story short, my GA was using a t-shirt cannon that had been left on a very hot field and it exploded on his leg, causing him to be rushed to the hospital and into emergency surgery. So like most GAs, he is not lovable. Um, I rushed to the hospital and felt that protective mothering instinct and then wrath, um, as members of the athletic department were quickly uh, to come and take advantage of him in his condition. They were attempting, while he was still recovering from surgery, um, to get him to sign agreements releasing liability. And boy, it's my wrath <laughs> on display at their blatant disregard for his health, his safety, and, and his will. I am not comparing myself 
to God here in any way, but I can viscerally understand wrath and imagine what the emotions um, I had that day towards the oppression of my VA rights, and that they're only a fraction, a fraction of God's divine wrath toward the oppressed orphans and widows. So hopefully you have that moment you can like grasp back to. In Bergerman's commentary on chapter 22, he concludes his chapter stating, the rhetoric of divine wrath and divine compassion is an assertion that this cannot stand. It is disrupted by the cry, and the cry mobilizes the God who has not succumbed to the narrative of domination. This identity of the exploited vulnerable shifts. It is, however, a constant in such a system of accumulation. To wrap up today's thoughts, I want to ground us back in some themes that we've discussed throughout Exodus. As the worship team, y'all can start coming back up. So Egypt was empire. Egypt was oppression and gross misuse of people. God delivered his people out of Egypt, out of empire. But God didn't eliminate empire. Instead, he created a divine covenant with his people that would fulfill his redemptive plan to restore humanity to its divine calling. He led his people through, um, through this plan by giving them commandments, rules that would help them set themselves apart as they, um, apart as they would help, as they would help them love him and love others. This was and still is radically different. We are called to be radically different. It's different and we're far from perfect. The Israelites were far from perfect. They were so bad at keeping his commandments specifically to help the foreigner, the orphan and the widow that he allowed in part um, their exile and captivity to the Babylonians. The Israelites, like we still do today, kept the rules of empire over the commandments of God. We permit systems of oppression and ex exploitation of others. We, like the Israelites, forget that we are foreigners in the land of Egypt, and it was God. It was God who brought the people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. As you leave today, I want you all to be rule breakers. I want you to feel the confidence, the empowerment to break the rules of the empire so that you may lift the voices and the rights of the oppressed, just as God has called us to do. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. If you would like to give, you can go to gracechurchnwa.org forward slash give. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.